my superpower is that I do know a lot of people. I get along with a lot of people and hopefully I can bring some folks together in a way that we recognize that we need to be a united front because we are in a war and we want a battle, but we are in a war. No more of the pettiness and also let's be brave and do some big, big things. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I'm lucky to have as my guest today, Stephanie Shriak. Stephanie was, among other things, the head of EMILY's List for 11 years, the campaign manager for Senators Franken and Tester, and the finance director for Howard Dean when he ran for president back in 2004. I asked about what it took to succeed EMILY's List's legendary founder, Ellen Malcolm, after 25 years at the helm, and how she managed that transition, and how she set her own direction for that organization, as well as about the other notables she's worked with. And Stephanie spoke about her current passion for changing the media landscape, which she sees as driven by right-wing propaganda to something more healthy and balanced. You should listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Stephanie Shriak. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Stephanie, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Oh, absolutely. I'm Stephanie Shriak. I am most known to be the uh, former president of Emily's List, where I very proudly served in that role for 11 years. Prior to that, I've been working in democratic politics as both a campaign manager, chief of staff, and finance director for many, many folks for many, many years. I always like to say how many years. So when I like age myself, but it's a lot. <laughs> well, you're considerably younger than me. So we can start with that. It all just keeps out. adding up. <laughs> <laughs> so why only 11 years at Emily's List? That's far fewer than the previous person. Do you have a problem with stamina? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Considering that most of my jobs before that were election cycle only and probably lasted at most 18 months, probably closer to six. I feel 11's an eternity. I am a Gen Xer. This is like amazing length of time. <laughs> Also, when you come in after uh, the great Ellen Malcolm, the founder who started Emily's List, literally in her basement with her besties and and watched her grow this amazing organization to the powerhouse, 
that was handed to me. I don't know how she did it for 25 years. That's what's extraordinary. (laughs) Actually, let me ask you about that transition because it's been studied, the transition between founder and the next person to run an organization. I had one side of that at NGP Van, and I'm not sure how perfectly I handled it, but I was well aware of some of the challenges, still botched some things. What was it like for you? How did you two make that handoff and what was hardest about it? Well, I can say this now because we have become great friends and we found our way through, but she and I, Ellen and I should write a book of all the things you should not do (laughs) because we made (laughs) so many mistakes along the way and learned a lot about each other, about the organization and, and really how to go through the process. People who make these transitions, organizations that make these transitions, really need to be thoughtful about the process. It is not something that you can do lightly. And I think a lot of particularly nonprofits who you know are running on lower budgets, trying to keep every dime tight, and also moving really quickly, don't think about the management, the leadership, the vision, how roles are going to be defined. And that was my case when I came in. I think the idea of having a new president sounded great, but the actual execution of handing over the reins did not feel so great uh, to Ms. Malcolm. And of course, I came in with you know, guns a blazing as a good Westerner would like, let's go, let's take this on. And we ran smack into each other pretty, pretty quickly. And it was really hard for a while. We brought in some, uh, we brought in some consultants who specialize in this work. We really had to sit down and think about honestly, the structure of the organization, including the board of directors, which at the time, a 25 year old organization the board had only been around for a few years. They'd been running on a steering committee of friends for a long, long time. So you can imagine even that transition was, was challenging. So it was like, I always told them, like your little girl just graduated and now you got to let her go to college and she's going to do things that you're not always going to like in college, but you got to let her go. (laughs) And in that process, she's going to learn new things. She's going to do new things. Little Emily is turning into an adult and we got to help her with that. And that's what it was like. (laughs) What was a bone of contention? Like what was a direction that you were guns a blazing to take it that maybe she resisted? Well, I would say even before that piece of things was what what was her role going to be and who was going to make all the decisions. And clearly, you know, the president of the organization is going to make all the decisions once the board signs off on the larger strategy and the budget. And she she didn't quite understand that that meant she was not in the day-to-day anymore. And nobody sat down with her about this. And she and I had lots of conversations afterwards. And I remember there was this meeting 
where one of the board members had sat me down and was like, this isn't working. I'm like, oh, you're telling me this isn't working. This, I, I know <laughs> this isn't working. And in that moment, I realized it's not working and Ellen is blaming me and I'm blaming Ellen, but I just realized whose fault it is. It's the board's. <laughs> The board of directors <laughs> is actually responsible for the transition. It's not the leaders. Like the board actually is responsible for the security and the fiscal strength of the organization. And in that moment, the boards really, to their credit, stepped up and went, you're right. And the board were all her friends. I was like, you all didn't sit down and think this through with her. You've known her for decades and you didn't think like, what imagine what life was going to be like post president of Emily's list. I'm like, I can't do that for Ellen, but they needed to do that for Ellen. And they needed to provide me space to figure out where Emily's list needed to go. And our problem was institutionally, I came in in 2010. So it was the very sort of back end of the recession where all the donors had lost a third of their wealth in the market, but had cut their contributions in half. So the budget was tough. And I knew the first thing we had to do was just correct the income flow. Forget about political strategy. If you don't have money, you can't do anything. And so I just needed to really do some significant investment in a digital strategy and fundraising on the income side of the operation and new databases, new technology, technology that hadn't been touched for, in some cases, a decade. That was part of it. I had these visions of coming in and thinking through how we were going to expand our work into legislatures and do even more sizable independent expenditures and then got there and went, oh, we need to get our financial house in order. So that was sort of the the beginning of it. And we did. We did all of that after it took about two years. I think they got very lucky that they picked somebody who would stick it out for over a decade and had the chops to manage that process. That search for the next leader in any kind of organization, it's it's hazardous. It's not easy to find the right fit. And you're you're subject to kind of some luck also in in the career of the person that you pick. You've just gone through that transition on the other end, right? You have a new leader there. Can you tell me about what it was like from now the side of the outgoing person? That's such a good question, right? So, because after 11 years, I was always worried and very mindful about Emily's list becoming Stephanie's list. So when I got there was Ellen's list, basically, if you want to just like use the names, it really was Ellen's list. Everybody thought of Ellen Malcolm when they thought Emily's list. And I wanted to make sure that Emily's list was Emily's list. And that my job was to make sure no matter what, it was going to be Emily's list. As time goes on and you're there longer, people start just, you know, putting it into the name of the leader. And and I realized that was really starting to happen probably in year seven and eight. I was like, oh, we got to think about, you know, getting more voices out. How do we ensure this isn't a cult of personality? I don't want a cult of personality. 
And so that was when I was like, we're going to think about transitioning out here. And when we went through the search, I was not part of the search. I do not think the the existing president should be part of choosing her successor. I know a lot of people disagree with me on this, but I actually don't think that the previous president should be on the board of directors because that is a, you know, the board's job is to assess how the president's doing. And I don't think the former president should be assessing how the next president's doing. You got to give that person room. So when I talked to LaFonza Butler, who's the new president, early on, very even during the search process, she was very blunt with me. And she was like, well, what's your role? Are you going on the board? I was like, hell no, I'm not going on the board. No, 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 no. I said, LaFonza, let me make this clear. I serve at the pleasure of the president. <laughs> so I'm a former president who will serve at the pleasure of the president. If you need me, I'm there. I'll do whatever you need me to do. But I'm going to stay out of your way. I'm going to hand you the keys. And you're going to go. And I'll spend time with you early on to do a couple of briefings, obviously, because you do that. But you got to go. You got to take it. That's when you change leadership. That's why you change leadership, to get new energy, to get new blood, to get new ideas. So that's what we did. And it's been pretty good. Do you think she understood how lucky she was getting in your experience, having had it be not perfect? <laughs> that you were making way because of that learning, I, I assume to some degree. I can't speak for her, so I don't really, I don't know for sure. But I knew my job was always the bridge. It was the bridge presidency between the founder and what was going to always be after. And that my job, if I could be successful at it, which I wasn't sure a lot of the time, was could I really transition it totally from Ellen's list to, and Ellen wanted that too, by the way. This wasn't just me. She got it. She she wouldn't have hired me if she didn't get. You don't hire someone like me who hadn't been part of Emily's list. So I was not part of the culture. I'd never worked there. So you're hiring an outsider to come in who's tied to the Democratic Party pretty closely so that's a very different direction. You don't bring that person in unless you want some change. And so what was really important for me was to have that closure. So the final change as I was leaving was Ellen's. So Ellen was chair of the board the entire time I was at Emily's List, which is an unusual situation. We made it work because we we built a good relationship. But I I knew, and, and she deep down knew that that was not a sustainable way to move forward. And I'm really proud of her because when I called her to tell her that I was going to step down as president, she decided that it was time at the same time to step down from the chair. And I was like, I did it. Like, this was it. This is actually what I was supposed to do. <laughs> I landed this, this organization. And Ellen got it and she was with me and we landed it to be the next phase. Now I was there longer than I thought I was going to be, but it was really a bridge presidency. I have a, an unusual perspective on this because I started a documentary film about entrepreneurs that was the sort of predecessor to this podcast, which I never 
made, but I interviewed a whole bunch of people on film. And one of them was Ellen Malcolm. Oh, I'm good. And I talked to her about the, you know, asked her about the founding and about the course of the building of her organization. And I did that very much from the perspective of the entrepreneur, which is what really she was in starting that. And we talked about, and so all of the questions were through that lens and through the lens of the founder, you want, if you care about the baby growing to be the college student that you referred to, you want to, just like the parent, you want to steer that being or organization in the right direction. And I think it is very hard to not think I'm the one who knows what the right path is. I'm the one who's the keeper of that original flame of the DNA or whatever. It's almost irresponsible for me as founder to not be there watching, steering, even if, you know, in reality, that can be dangerous, can be difficult, can clip the wings of someone coming after it and often fouls up organizations. So listening to all this is fascinating to me from multiple perspectives. Well, in that process, I'm sure you've read all of, or at least a lot of the academic work of founder syndrome and how many startups fail in that transition. I mean, I had... (laughs) (laughs) I had a couple of really wonderful donors of Emily's List. When I first met them, literally said to me, there is no way this is going to work. (laughs) (laughs) Like, no way. You are going to fail. You are going to fail. And I was like, ow, can we like maybe have a second meeting before you decide my future of failure? Uh, It was fascinating because they were so certain that that nobody could do well sort of both two things no one could do it as well as ellen and ellen was never going to step aside sort of that combination of things and the amazing thing about ellen malcolm and what i've i've grown to just love and adore about her like it was hard for her I mean, this was a really, really hard thing to do. And I, early on, definitely in the first months or first year, I did not respect the difficulty uh, because I was having my own set of difficulty as a human being trying to take over an organization and getting the ship righted in the middle of a really bad election for Democrats in 2010 and a financial challenge for the organization. So, so I like, would I have done things differently? Yes. Would I have asked questions up front? Yes. Like what exactly is the role of the founder? How is this going to proceed? Where are the lines of division? And if they were not clearly defined, I don't think I would have taken the job. And then, of course, there's the, <laughs> you say they're defined, and then can you execute those? Those are also a different thing. We figured it out. It was not easy, but we did figure it out. Well, it definitely brings up for me a lot of thoughts about the transition that I had, which I think I also extended too long and had reasons for that. And I understand the pain that she felt. I, I, I'm 
you know, my version of it. And it's just, you know, it's human humans. What is very interesting about Emily's list, one of the things is the durability of that place as an organization, as a successful organization. It is rare in in any area of the economy, nonprofit or for profit or whatever, to have an organization renew and change and adapt to the times and succeed. The adaptations that you made what was key to what you did to extend its run and make and take it bigger places well and it's so interesting because ellen and i would have some debates about this because her her theory of of continuing the organization was to always sort of reinvent every election cycle so you had something new to sell she's a marketer you know she has an mba she thinks about it from that direction. I think about it more from a political organization, a political direction. And to me, the the reason Emily's list is as strong as it is and has always been is simply because of a clear, definable mission that nobody can question. Like when you ask what Emily's list does, pretty much everybody in town knows their mission is to elect Democratic pro-choice women. Period. That's it. That's what they do. There's nothing else on there. Like that is actually the mission. So everything you do, as long as you center that mission, the creative pieces is how do you elect more women? How do you find more women? How do you do this? What new things do you need to do? to make this happen. And the reason the money came in and a couple of the things that I did to do that was one, build out the digital capacity, which just didn't exist yet. It was 2010. It was behind, but got going and we fixed that. But we also really, really expanded our major donor fundraising Interestingly, not necessarily because the mission was so catchy, like shiny. It wasn't a shiny new mission, right? I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what Emily's List does. We won races. I could go to people and say, you want more Democrats? Then give money to Emily's List. Now, those Democrats are going to be women. But you don't really care. <laughs> I look at people. Really, in fact, you probably kind of deep down want more women and people of color. That's kind of who we are as a party. So just like support us and we will win these races. And that's where the money started moving in even faster. You know, also the legal changes, to be honest, helped more money. You know, Citizens United and the, and the growth of super PACs and Emily's List having one of the first super PACs, in fact, had the first super PAC, uh, allowed us to sort of get ahead of the ball game on on that piece of things. And so that that did help because we went, when I got there, I mean, we were down that year, that cycle because of the recession. So I came in and I think my first cycle was about a $30 million cycle. And I left the last cycle with having a, an over $120 million cycle in five cycles and a staff of, you know, 40, I had a downsize, unfortunately, but a, a, a staff of 40 up to 120. 
you know, so we were able to have great growth and expansion during that time that I was there because we were good at the job. I did not feel like we had to come up with new programs to do that. Just be good at what you do and keep delivering on what you do best and build the partnerships and the relationships that, that then others can trust that you're going to deliver what you say you're going to deliver. And, and you can do that with a clear mission. And you did inherit that clear mission and you inherited that whole legacy. There is more to running an organization than the clarity of the mission. Did you try to change the orga- organizational culture at all? Did you try to put your stamp on sort of how it operated that was distinct from what came before? I don't know exactly because I never worked at Emily's List. I couldn't say exactly how Ellen Malcolm ran the organization. And also in over 25 years, she ran it differently because she was growing and changing and evolving as, as a manager and a leader. I came in with more direct electoral experience than she had ever had. And also probably with more public presence than when she started. But I also had never done press. So like her, I had to learn how to do those things, (laughs) which which was daunting, which was daunting. I figured it out. You hire people. So I tell our candidates, I was like, don't, don't tell me you can't do media training. I do media training once a month. So if I can do it once a month, you can suck it up and do your damn media training candidates. I'm still saying that all candidates don't even think because you've been in the Senate a long time, you don't need media training, by the way. I just want to say that, like get your media training regularly. Sorry, I have very strong opinions about this. But what what I did want to bring in, my theory of management, internal management is hire the best you can. So hire the best people. You're always in competition with others, but you do your best. You give them a clear roadmap of what you want to accomplish, and then you let them run. And I like to let them run really fast. And I do not like perfection getting in the way of the progress. I'll take a few hits and I'll take a few mistakes if we keep on moving forward. Standing still and not doing anything, that's a decision. And I think it's almost always, with a few exceptions, a bad decision. Every once in a while, you got to stand still. Most often, you got to keep going forward. And so my job was to get them the resources they needed to move. And that wasn't just money, but it was money, coaching, just support, advice and counsel when they needed it, sometimes just a gut check when they needed it but to let them run. And then if they fell, if they tripped and fell, you know, my job was to pick them up and like wipe the dirt off their knees and then say, okay, keep going. It's okay. That was how I did things. I'm not a micromanager at all. And I really, really want folks to succeed. And when they succeed, I want them to get credit for succeeding because that only strengthens, it strengthens the organization. But it's not so bad for me either. Like I got to say, folks miss that. If you take credit for everything, they think you do everything fine. But if I got 20 people who are taking credit, but they work for me, that makes me look pretty freaking good. (laughs) 
And I'm not having problems with that. And I feel like that is that has worked really well in my life every step of the way. And it's much more fun that way. Well, you had been campaign manager for a number of big statewide campaigns before. And when I've talked to campaign managers about their philosophy of management, they have often said almost the same words that you said about like hire good people, get out of their way, essentially. Did, is that where that came from? Where did your philosophy of management come from? How did you build it up? Yeah, it came from my dad. <laughs> my, my dad is a, or was, he's retired now, but he was a, a laboratory administrator, hospital administrator, and he ran laboratories. He started as a medical technologist and then went back to college to get his master's in hospital administration. And this sort of became my hero. First off, I thought that was a really brave thing to do when you have three kids at home, but he knew it was the best thing for the family. And financially, was it was the right thing to do. And then he, he always had this very calm way of of explaining, like you give people what they need to do, make sure they've got the tools, and if they don't do it, then you sit them down try to give them a second chance unless it's something so bad you can't, so egregious you can't. Uh, and if they don't do it, then you got to you gotta make a change. And he was always very sort of matter of fact about it, but in a kind way. And I really took that to heart because, I mean, you do still have to make hard decisions. And if folks aren't performing, you do have to make changes, meaning, yes, you do have to let people go. You have to fire people along the way. That was a big piece of it. And I think also in a campaign setting, the one thing you don't have more of is time. So in a campaign setting, unlike other entities, you got to get people to do as much as they can. And the more you get in their way, you get into their business, you're losing time. You're costing them time. There is an opportunity cost to getting in the weeds with people on a campaign. So you got to be really thoughtful of when that happens because you can't get the time back. That deadline is solid. <laughs> it doesn't move. Along the way, you worked for some pretty unique politicians. I think Dean and Tester and Franken, for example. Yeah, those are three are, doozies, right? <laughs> right. I mean, those are three people with and then i took over for ellen malcolm like what is what is this what is what, what am i doing <laughs> for people who don't who haven't been close to those three let me talk about ellen but tell me a little about them each in turn like i got to interview howard uh for this podcast at one point oh, and great. I, until i think i irritated him about 50 minutes in and i could see that i <laughs> no. like <laughs> i'm so surprised <laughs> I think he was, I could see, I could see see him like getting impatient with me and I found a way to get out of it pretty soon, but he was lovely. It was, and, and good to, to see him from a different perspective, but tell me about each of those 
those individuals. I'm, I'm just curious about yeah. for myself and I'm sure other people oh are. Oh my gosh. And so yeah, for folks who remember Howard Dean, cause I, now it's so long ago and I think I feel he's still, like, he's still alive. <laughs> no, very alive. They're all, all of them are very alive and, and active in different ways. And, uh, Howard, the background of Howard Dean, you know, for folks who don't know, he was obviously ran for president in 2004, but he was the governor and frankly, accidental governor of Vermont because the previous governor had passed away. He was lieutenant governor, popped up as as governor and served for over a decade because uh, you can in Vermont. But prior to that, he's a physician. So the thing about Governor Dean that I appreciate and found challenging at the same time is that you talk about keep moving forward. There's not a lot of reflecting back. And I think, you know, when you're a doctor, I think about this a lot, particularly my dad being in healthcare, like you have to make a decision and then you got to just keep going. You're providing healthcare and and you just got to kind of work the problem. And you can't spend a lot of time looking back. You got to keep work because you got to get the patient well. And I think that sort of scientific medical mindset of Governor Deans worked in a lot of ways that he, like when mistakes were made and that campaign had plenty of them, he just kept going and just kept moving forward, which was admirable. But at times you're just like, that is when you're like, well, sometimes you do have to stop and you have to reflect about what's going on and then try to make some decisions moving forward. Uh, so that was always a little bit of a challenge. I really genuinely nice, kind man who really never, I don't believe, particularly early on, did he think he was going to come close. He ran because he wanted to talk about healthcare. We came on to his campaign because he was against the war. So you can already see that there's this like very unusual campaign set up that made it wild. I often think like if only you could write a real solid book about that campaign, that would be pretty spectacular because I don't know of many presidential campaigns that were quite like that one. I talked to a, let's just say, unnamed media consultant who was on that campaign who said to me something like, and I don't think it was, it was probably not recorded, but like it was something like, we maybe dodged a bullet in him not getting the nomination. I don't think they ended up on great terms, but do you think he would have made a good president? I do. You know, I do. He would have been a different kind of president. I think he was evolving to it. My theory on president, I'm not the only one who holds this theory, by the way. So this is not, it's not even my theory. I remember um, the late Mike Ford shared this with me. I think Joe Trippi got it from Mike Ford. So I, and I do get this is that the, the process of running for president like is unbelievably challenging. Like anybody who thinks, oh, I've run for U.S. Senate, I've run for governor, or I've managed those races and so a presidential, no problem, I can do that. I, it's just not true. It's so different. It is so complicated and exhausting and challenging. And every day there are so many decisions that need to be made all the time. And the process of running for the candidate and also, the, I would say, the leadership team around the candidate makes a president possible. 
no one starts at the beginning of that process ready to be president. No one. You need the process to get one human ready to take the job of president, which, by the way, is way more complicated and harder than even the campaign. The question was, was Howard Dean evolving fast enough to be prepared to be president? And he was evolving and he, and he needed more people around him that had more presidential experience. And I think if the Iowa caucuses had gone better, that would have started happening. That's part of it. And, you know, then it's about the people you hire. You're going to hire good people. And he makes quick decisions. Like Howard Dean would make quick decisions, which in my mind makes a good president, as long as you have good people around you providing good advice. Testers, you're next. Uh, uh, tell me Tester, about him. Senator, Senator John Tester. He's like the Montana's Montanan. So I grew up in Butte, Montana, uh, which is a, for folks who don't know, is a union mining town, though the the union, the mining union got busted when I was a kid in the 80s. So I grew up in that kind of like rough and tumble environment. And John uh, is a farmer, still a farmer. And when I came in to to meet him, I know this doesn't sound funny, but I'm like the city kid version of Montana. And he's like the farm kid version of Montana. <laughs> and I'm like, there's farms here? And he's like, you're from the mining town. I mean, it's a very funny dynamic in Montana. And neither are ranchers. So it's a whole different volume. He really does understand people. He likes people. He likes to talk to people. He likes to be around people. He's very, he's a social person. I think that is his great strength because he really deeply understands better than the vast majority. There's some women that I would put in that category too at Emily's list, but he's one of the few that really understands the pain people are going through, can relate to it because of his own life, his own economic situation. Like, farming's not easy. He's had very bad years. He had years without health care. So he personally has lived the struggles of an American family and just can relate to them in a way that so few can. And I knew this about him as soon as I met him. It was like, he was never going to lose that grounding in the Senate. His feet are planted in that farm, on that farm, outside of Big Sandy, Montana. That's who he is. And he brings that with him. I mean, that was sort of the whole mantra of the campaign was, you know, let's make Washington look a little bit more like Montana. <laughs> he does that every day. He's pretty cool. He's like a brother. I, he's just a really, really genuinely cool and good guy. He's got to make a big decision to try to hold a state that is not federally voting the way Democratic of late. Yeah, my my home state has shifted a bit to the right. That is for sure. Though we had a really close congressional race, not to overlook, now that we have a second district now in Montana. So in the Montana's first congressional with Monica Trinnell, this last go around against Zinke, now incoming Congressman Zinke. But it was surprisingly close and was off of everybody's radar. It's there. You just, as a Democrat, 
you have to sort of put your party aside and be all about Montana, like all about Montana every single day. Cause that's what Montanans want. They really want somebody who's all about Montana. They will tolerate differences in opinion on some policies as long as you're taking care of the people of Montana to the very best of your ability and you're protecting their public lands because don't mess with our public lands. <laughs> so yeah, he does have a big decision in front of him. He's, you know, he's served 18 years. He's done so much work, particularly for veterans, unbelievable work for veterans. It's going to be a hard, hard race for a man who's never had an easy one, by the way, like none of them have been easy. I always tease him. I was like, we finally got a good campaign manager the last time with Christy Roberts because she at least got you over 50. The first two of us did not. <laughs> so we got you win, but not over 50. It's going to be a challenge. I, I do think he, he is the guy that can do it because he has done something really special, which is he knows every corner of the state, which means he knows people in every corner of the state. I don't even know what to ask you about Al Franken because he's such an interesting politician and so adept verbally and so smart. And I was so attracted to him as a senator. And then I don't feel comfortable with the way he went out at all. You know, I, I understand it, but it, it, it's, it's a big tragedy for the country, I think, although it's complicated. How did you get that role and what was the campaign like and what's he like? He did some things with Howard Dean. I actually met him during that campaign. That's how I, I met Al. And then we were reconnected uh, by a mutual friend because he was thinking about moving back to Minnesota and running for Senate and I had already done a congressional race. I'd actually done two congressional races in Minnesota. So I'd, I've had good Minnesota roots. The Shriocks are from Minnesota. So I've got to spend a lot of time out there. And uh, so I sat down with him, I guess in 2005. So three years. So he, he ran in eight in 2005. And it was funny because he was like, I, I think I want to get back there and I'm going to run against Norm Coleman. And I said, well, honestly, why don't you get back now? There's going to be an open seat. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, well, what do you mean? I said, well, Mark Dayton is not going to run for re-election. And he's like, well, that's not true. And I was like, no, that, that's totally true. <laughs> I think it's one of the few times I, I had more information than Al Franken. And he goes, well, that's just, that's just not, no, didn't believe it. And he's like, well, what should I do? I said, well, first off, you better move back fast. His roots, though, are are obviously in Minnesota. Was it? And then, you know, you build out your political operation and start a PAC and go forward. And I wish you the best of luck. He's like, will you run the PAC? I'm like, absolutely not. You're like, go, good luck. I was like, it's not what I want to do. I'm going to go move on and do other things. And I did. I went and ran John Tester's race in 2006. Mark Dayton did retire. Amy Klobuchar got that seat. Al Franken called. He's like, oh, my gosh, how did you know that? I said, you know, I follow politics. <laughs> like this, you you are super smart in so many ways. This is my superpower. You have many superpowers, Mr. Franken, but this is my superpower. We just became friendly, 
And when he was already running, but the campaign was sort of understaffed, even though it had resources, they just weren't able to hire talent. I can't even really remember why that was the case. It was clear he was going to win the primary or at least get the nomination. Minnesota has a funny system, so you got to go through a convention process. It sort of hit the skids. He had a couple of problems. He was falling in the polls. At one point, it was showing that he was, this was the spring, uh, 11 points down. And I got brought in, actually, Senator Tester, I was his chief at the time. And I got brought in by Chairman Schumer, who was running the DSCC. And he's like, we need Stephanie to go out to Minnesota. I was like, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. And he says, Al's, that's the only person Al will tolerate. Well, because I knew him. I was like, okay, 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 fine, we'll do it. That's how I ended up getting out there. We could hold, do a whole segment on that campaign. It was Well, it went fun. into overtime, right? Oh, God. Oh, God. It, it was Schumer. I'll never forget. Yeah, it was a recount and there was a court case and it was, you know, geez, it was, it was close. On election morning, I'll never forget this, Senator Schumer calls me and he's like, Stephanie, I know what's happening in every other race in the country. Who's going to win? Who's going to lose? Except for you. So what's going <laughs> to happen? And I said, sir, it's too close to call. <laughs> <laughs> and it was too close to call. It was a tie. It was a tie that night. Basically, it was a tie. But Al, Al I've never worked with anybody smarter, more intelligent, the ability to put concepts together in ways that it would never cross my mind, particularly related to policy. He wasn't always politically savvy, but his policy chops, his ability to explain why the policy changes made sense. I haven't seen anybody else like that. And so you're right. It is a huge loss to the Senate and to this country I think it's partially his ability, having met other satirists and comedians around him, these are smart, intelligent, super intelligent people. The folks that can put together comedy, particularly around current events, these are really crazy smart people because they see the problem and then can figure out how to say it in a different way. Like we need more of those folks. That is extraordinary. I, I learned a lot from him. Like I said, he's he's probably the smartest person I've ever directly worked with. Period. I, I got that sense. Yesterday, I interviewed a former professional basketball player who is doing good works in social justice right now. Who played for. Mm, a decade and a half. And he mentioned that he had some aspirations maybe to, to run at some point. And I was very impressed by him in the interview and by a memoir that he has. And I wonder what your advice would be to someone like Al who sat outside of the regular electoral politics arena, hadn't been a politician, hadn't been an operative, didn't follow politics the way you have or participate in politics the way you have, what would you do? You're not running soon, but you really don't know the game. 
you don't even know what you don't know. How do you prepare to make that transition if you have that aspiration someday? That's good because we have we have folks coming in running from a wider, diverse set of backgrounds, which I think is really, really good for American politics. But I do think to really be successful, there's some pieces of advice I would definitely give. One, talk to some folks who actually do this for a living. Doesn't mean you have to listen to everything that they say, but it will just give you a sense of how it works. So you can like a couple of campaign managers or consultants just to ask some questions of what the process is. The most important thing is to know why you want to do it. Figure out why you want to run for office, which will also guide you to which office you want to run for. For Al Franken, who was coming at this obviously from outside, but also was radio host at Air America, done a lot of national politics. It was clear that this is a man who was always going to run for U.S. Senate. Like he would never run for a governorship. It's not his strength. His interest was federal. He loved doing things for the state, but as it related to federal policy. So there was no question there. So you had to think about what you want to do, why, like really understand the why, and then be able to explain it in two minutes. So figure out what that is and explain it in two minutes. So that's really important. It can't be just because I think I have something to say. Well, what is it that you have to say? What is it? What do you actually bring other than fame to this role? So figure that out. And then Honestly, to be really good at it, like you can go and win now with a big name because of social media and how these things work. But if you want to be good at it, and I really hope this person wants to be good at it and folks want to be good at it, spend time in your state or your district, wherever you're going to run, and find out what is going on. You think you know what's going on in the community? You don't. You know what's going on in your community. So go talk to people. Go talk to teachers. Go talk to union leaders. Go talk to activists. Go talk to elected officials. Start making some friends. Start building your coalition. But go on a little listening tour and figure it out. It also shows that you're serious. That was what I really learned with Al, because both John Tester and Howard Dean, they had other careers. That's what made them super interesting. They had other careers that they were really engaged with. Al had never run before. This was all super new. And so he spent a huge amount of time getting to know every corner of Minnesota. And he traveled to the county fairs and he supported the local candidates and he went and did events for them because his name brought people to events. And if you're a former MBA star, guess what? You will probably help these candidates just by being at these events. And I always said to Al, when when we had business cards, right? Every time you get a business card and you think that person might give you money, just put a dollar sign on the back. So when you get a finance director, you can just hand that box. And sure enough, he literally handed a box of business cards to Dinah Dale, his finance director, with little dollar signs on the back. I guess the version of that is put it in your phone and make sure you keep it. Get to know your community. Understand what's going on. It will make you better. 
Do you think there's a possible comeback into politics for Al? I do. If it's something he wants to do, uh, yes. I think there is definitely a need for his voice always. There always has been. He's so smart. And he's finding ways, right? You know, he's... He's got a podcast. Yeah, he's got his podcast. He's hosting some nightly show. There's like, he's getting out there. He just recently did a whole round of stand-up, which is really unique for him because you know, folks think of him as a comedian who did stand-up, but the truth is, is he always had a partner. It was Frank and Davis for all those years long ago. This is now we're really dating ourselves, right? But that was back in the 70s, even before Saturday Night Live. So this was new for him. And I'm really proud of him. It was sort of a brave new world for him to do a stand-up on his own. And I think folks really enjoyed it. And I, I think I think he's finding his way, which is really good. I want to pick up one thread that I was curious about from earlier, which was this notion of media training. What did you learn? I've never seen a media trainer in action. That may be evident. You too can get media training. I'm telling you, it's really helpful. It's really helpful. What do they train you to do? What are the basic things that you would expect to get if you were media trained? Well, it sort of depends on where you start, right? But your basics are, like, if you're a nervous speaker, how do you get through your nervousness? Sometimes you start with that, like, way at the beginning of it. You have to start with that, yeah. Yeah, you got to get over sort of the nervousness of of speaking, whether it's like, I didn't mind doing speeches, but you put a microphone like this, the fact that I can do this now and have fun is shocking from 2010, like shocking because just like the microphone would make me nervous. I'm like, this is a crazy thing. And then a TV camera, forget about it. Like total panic, total panic because I didn't want to say anything wrong. They're sort of just practicing, practicing how you say things, how you answer questions, uh, which is why I do it regularly. I still, you know, I actually just asked a friend if I, I'm like, I need a refresher because I now that I'm not the president of Emily's List, I don't do it very often, but I do do some MSNBC hits here and there. And it's just good practice to have somebody throw questions at you to see if you can answer them. That's sort of the press version of media training, like practice answering questions, get used to the back and forth, get used to the the format, radio, TV, print, it's all different. And then there's the speech training, the speech coaching. And that includes presence on the stage or in front of an audience. How do you stand? How do you deliver? It's the physical pieces. And I, so every time I did a big speech, so at our big gala where we'd have 12 to 1500 people, I would be on a teleprompter and I would bring in an actress from New York who would practice with me the weekend before in the conference room. And I'd get the speech out and we would go through it over and over again. And one, because she wasn't political, if she didn't understand something, it got rewritten on the spot. Because if she didn't get it, there's going to be plenty of other people who don't get it. So that was one thing. But the second piece was the delivery. 
When do you pause? When do you smile? I'm very smiley. So I got a lot of crap for being like, you can't smile through a hit. Like if you're going to knock the Republicans, don't smile through it. You know, (laughs) it doesn't compute. It doesn't make sense. I often, I would be very loud. You can tell I'm a loud speaker and I'd be very loud. The learning that sometimes you just got to drop it down, slow it down. I just, I don't know if she even knows I call it this, but I, I call it the Maggie Hassan. So Senator Hassan is a beautiful speaker, but she does not have a lot of power in her voice. And part of that is just smaller people don't. Like you have a smaller diaphragm. It's literally physical in a lot of cases. And she's not a yeller and she's not a, like, she's not an emoter. She's a New Hampshire person. But what she does, instead of going to the audience with your voice, she brings them to her in her quietness, in her storytelling. And you lean in and you can literally watch the room come to her. That is an amazing ability. Now, if you can mix that with also going out and doing the back and forth, it's really very powerful. So these are the things you learn and then you practice. Yeah. What is your life now? What are you up to? I, that's such a good question. So I'm doing a little bit of consulting, which has been fun because I've got to do different things. I've been advising Strategic Victory Fund, which in the last election were focused on the re-election of Democratic governors in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Nevada. So they went four for five, not too bad, and in pretty critical states for the presidential races. And we'll be looking at what we can do in the presidential. I did some coaching for some organizations, including Run for Something, which I'm so proud of. They were a, a startup in 2017 who are committed to getting uh, younger people to run for office. And ah, that's why Ross recommended you to me or connected. Yes. Me. Yes. Yes. So Ross and I work together, which is super fun. And Amanda, which is great. And then the other thing I'm really, really interested in, and it's sort of my pro bono work, though I've gotten Strategic Victory Fund to look at it a little bit too, is I feel very passionate about Democrats and good government slash good journalism people owning the means of broadcasting out journalism and information. I think we are in a situation in this country where the right has very successfully built a broadcasting system for their information from Fox News down to an incredible networked set of digital platforms all aligned with the Christian broadcasting network and the right-wing Christian organizations that results in them motivating their base 24-7. 24-7. Their base is getting information every minute of every day. The the left and the Democrats and in the centrists in the middle have nothing like that. And basic real journalism is slipping away. 
newspapers are slipping away, local television slipping away, viewership is slipping away, and we don't own any capacity. So they own their means of communication and we rent ours. And often we rent them from them. <laughs> so they're getting our money. <laughs> We're buying it. Folks are like, why do you buy so many ads? I'm like, because there's no way we can get our information out. That's it. We buy ads. And so I, I'm really urging folks to look at opportunities to get involved in, if you can, financially owning local means of, of journalism, to protect journalism, to protect local journalism. And also, like, what else can we build from Courier News that Tara McGowan has started or CJ Grimes with Work Money, which is a really interesting platform, really using a texting system to get information to folks really on just like helping people out. That's all it is. Just explaining what government can do for you, even if you hate government. Like that, that's what we need. We just need to explain that your government can actually help you. If you're having mortgage problems, there's a place to go. It's called the government. There are services. So simple, you know, to buying local newspapers, weekly newspapers, buying radio stations. By, like We need to get serious about that because they are. And they keep buying up everything. And we need a podcast network, by the way. We need a real podcast network that all work together and communicate and can push each other up. We got to get real. We can't be all in little silos. Your podcast can't be just in your little podcast silo. It needs to be connected to a larger set of podcasts that are talking about the work that we do. And then we can cross advertise on all of those. There's my spiel. That So I, I'm not getting paid for that. I'm just going to evangelize on it. <laughs> well, whenever I ask somebody about gaps in the progressive ecosystem, they all say media. And, I, and the word gap isn't even big enough to describe no. the like Grand Canyon <laughs> we have. Yes. Well, it's not even close. So maybe we should get a progressive, enlightened billionaire to buy something like Twitter so they can turn it away. <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> Whoa, wait a second. Maybe like a good progressive could buy legacy media. These things have brands. People are still watching them. You're tilting at windmills there, evangelizing this. I mean, we have a long way to go. Do you think there's a viable strategy to accomplishing this? I think pieces of it are going to happen. I think there's real conversations beginning to happen. And I'm not necessarily talking about a, a redevelopment of the Fox News. Thing. You don't mean a propaganda network. You don't mean lying. No, we need to have a good way to counter the misinformation that's coming out. And we don't really have good ways into those systems because we don't even have our own. I don't think that they, I love how they're like, oh, but there's the mainstream media. Mainstream media re is in a constant reaction to the right wing. There basically is not mainstream media anymore. They are reacting to what is on Fox News and talk radio on the right and whatever's coming out. That's where we are. They're driving the agenda in media. What do you think people ought to do? 
that have the resources, whether individually or through organizations, what, what do you think, what do you think people should do? Buy a station, but like it's, it's, it's huge, right? No, we need some, I am praying that a few very, very wealthy individuals or families who care deeply about our government and democracy and pure journalism build a true media company. Be business people who have a media company who are going to fight it out against the right-wing propaganda media companies. They are companies. So we need to be companies too. So build some companies. So Rupert Murdoch has fucked up multiple countries with his empire, right? Yes, he has. Thank you. (laughs) I mean, drastically. This isn't even just a United States problem. No. I'm like, come on, wake up. It's Australia, England, you know, like it's, yes. Yes. Where is our Salem or Sinclair or like, we can do this, be business people. I know we're Democrats and we're progressives, but we can be business people. We can do it and we can do it for the right reason. So you have some experience running an organization. Supposing someone says, I would like Stephanie to run this media empire. You got a billion dollars. That's a start. A certain crypto empire just melted down and and from someone who was funding progressive causes and had some ideas about media. Um, Okay, but you have landed someone who isn't sitting on a Ponzi scheme. Okay, that- good. Yeah, I don't want to not have that, please. A, sol- a solid set of resources that are committed. So what do you do? You're in charge. And I suspect you have to hire some people who have some media, more media yes. experience than just the media training that we've, that we've talked yeah, about. Yeah, no, no, that's correct. Who is going to be the Rush Limbaugh's? How do we build... The whole. So we need so many things, right? Yes. We need so many things. And a billion dollars, that's a good start. That's how big we're talking right now. That's a good start. It's well, I mean, not- I don't know what the budget is for Fox in a year. I, I have no idea. Yeah, what they spend, that that I don't know. And that's point- on top of what they've spent year after year after year. When they had The Simpsons first. So I was like, ah, The Simpsons, that's cool. I like Fox. Yes. Yeah. Of course, the news rolled out from them at some point, but the Fox News itself did not make money for years and years. It was a net loss. So you need to be brave and you got to expect that you're not going to get a return on those resources right away. It's going to take some time. So uh, there's a couple things I think I would do relatively quickly. I think we need to bring together existing audiences. So I talk about like this podcast network. We have a lot of great podcasts uh, that are informational. Isn't Crooked Media such a... Crooked Media is a great example of it. And they're part of this. And I think I would definitely sit down and figure out how they fit in this, if that's the place or is there something else. We need a talent agency that is investing in YouTubers and podcasters and creators who don't have to worry about living. They can just keep doing what they're doing. And then we can start cross-pollinating their work so people know about it. 
people tell me I'm not, and any, I have no expertise in this, but people tell me that right wing YouTubers and, and other platform people are funded, funded yeah. by the Republicans. They are. That's a big advantage. They're either funded as in just given money straight out, or they're invested in with a business plan for a rate of return. And it feels a lot better if there's a rate of return on the back end of this. Yeah. Uh, for these investors. Our mindset, I think, needs to alter. We can do some like good, pure journalism can be C3, absolutely, and and should be. Uh, but the media companies and ways to do this, I think, need to start looking at businesses. I would definitely go search out some of the folks who've already lived in both legacy and digital media spaces to figure out how they combine them all. Radio is not dead in the Midwest. People say Iowa was transformed by talk radio. It's just changed that state. I don't know if that's the cause, but that's what I hear. I'm sure it's a piece of it. Some people say that progressive people are not the same kind of audience that the rights audience is, and they're not reached by the same kind of tactics. And the some of the big attempts to create progressive media companies haven't succeeded right in the past a bunch of money has gone into the air americas things like that and i want to catch you on that air, air american things like what other thing oh boy exposing my lack of knowledge perhaps because the list is not long <laughs> yeah. the list is not long that's why you don't have it in your head yeah like yes there's probably a couple of other things but the list so you don't think long. you don't think we've really tried hard enough i don't think we've tried hardly at all <laughs> Air America didn't have enough resources. They also had some bad management. Let's just be honest. If it's such a good business to like have a functional progressive, why is not the world of venture capital, the, the world of smart, wealthy people who know media, why have they not created this already? It should be this like great opportunity. It's not a great business. It should be, though. Fox is a good business. Ultimately, but you had to have brave souls who are willing to lose money for years. That's typical for any substantial business play. Correct. But we've got two things going on. You've got the willingness to do that. There's sort of the, the, the willingness to take the risk and put the money in, realizing that you're going to lose and could lose. And two, you just said it. There's this whole theory that, well, progressive folks are different, so it's not going to work. Okay, that's first off, I think that's a load of crap. This isn't just about progressives, like that little group of progressives. The other thing you said is people say, is this true? Iowa was completely turned around on talk radio. Okay, those are just Iowans. They were with us and now they're not because of talk radio. So, what, we don't have talk, we don't have anything to say? Are you kidding me? If we had talk radio, maybe we would swing Iowa. Maybe if we had talk radio in Mississippi, we'd swing Mississippi. Right now, we don't own any ways of disseminating anything. We don't own radio stations. We don't own television stations. We don't own the means of communication. And we hardly own any digital platforms. And I don't mean like the big ones. I mean, just like networks. And then they're not, so then there's nothing to network. Well, you, you are a very connected 
political person who has been around for a long time at a high level, is something going on to give us hope? Where Where is the state of play of this problem in a solution? There's some startups. I had Tara on, right? She, yeah. She, it is so, uh, you know, it's so much at the very beginning. It is. There's not that much money. It's in small number of states. Very few people are aware of it so far. All power to her for sailing into that. There's a Salem. There's all the Christian stations. They had like 12 stations for years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for years. But our problem is speed, right? So now we're in a situation where they're, we're in a race to buy, like they're out there collecting stuff and we're like getting yeah. started. So I'm trying to kickstart this because I think we need to put way more investment in things like Courier and the Latino media network that Stephanie Valencia yeah. and folks just put together, like work money and, and cricket media. Like these things need more investment now. They don't need like, here's $500,000 contribution. Screw that. Give them $20 million and some runway. Give them $50 million and let them go hire talent and start exploding this thing. We are doing this in increments that are so small that they can't see what it's going to look like, or they have a vision, but they need that. And I was like, so make it an investment and build out your C-Corp and go. That is my like argument for folks that are building from scratch. And then we got to go figure out the audiences. Where do we want to go get things? The weekly newspapers are really interesting to me. And I've been working with a group uh, who's who's got a good business model that's looking at how to do it. Now it's about finding the investors and the lead investors that are willing to take this risk because folks like their weekly newspapers. John Tester always says they're the one thing that hangs around the house all week because it's got all the ads you need on Saturday. <laughs> I want to just ask you one thing about politics in the age of Trump. Something is different since he came around. Not to say that the Tea Party Republicans or Patrick Buchanan or George Wallace, they weren't precursors to this kind of populist Republican, but he added something or picked something up, which is the authoritarian playbook, however poorly played. He still tried to hang on to power in the United States after losing a national election and instigating an insurrection after all the things he did in office that exposed that this was his playbook. I'm still mouth agape about, about what happened to us as a country because of him and the people who've supported him. I can't even reconcile my feelings about politics before with my feelings about politics now and the level of worry and the awareness of how fragile things can be, even if so far we've had some success in fighting it off. And we got another election. I was going to say, we've won one battle in this long yeah. war. Yeah. And the person who gets the Republican nomination this time, whether it's Trump or DeSantis or even somebody else, is likely to be aiming in the same direction, right? Just so... 
I agree. What's your sort of understanding of politics now? How is it different? How do you think that people who do regular politics, political professionals, should change because of this existential situation we've got ourselves in? And that's an easy question. Yeah, that's an easy question. Part of why I'm so animated about access to media distribution is part of the solution. Because if we don't have that, and this authoritarian party, which is what they are, the mega authoritarian party that we are up against as a democratic party and independents, they will... One of the reasons Trump exploded so much is that there was a system for him to get his message out fast. Barry Goldwater didn't have that. Pat Buchanan didn't have that. The Tea Party barely had it because Twitter had just started. So that's part of this, right? But also it was just aided and abetted by the Washington Post and the New York Times and CNN and MSNBC and everybody else. all reacting to the right-wing media. Like everybody's like, there's a mainstream media there. No, there's one media driving an agenda and it's the right and everybody else is reacting to it. That's not how they see it. They think they're the victim and they're under assault. They're yeah. so good. They're so, that well, authoritarianism is always really good at, at convincing people, their, their people, that they are the victims. That, that is the beauty of an authoritarian dictator is that they're the victims of the other. And the other are terrible, therefore they should be banished, power taken away over history. There you go. That's the thing. Uh, and that's what's going on. They've been wronged. And good Americans who are frustrated by the rapid changes going on in their lives caused by technology, jobs, the economy, globalization, all the things that are going on in people's lives are scared and very vulnerable to that kind of messaging. So there you go. So we've got that. And then on our side, we got to get real. We got to get really focused on a couple of pieces of what we're doing. We're good at governing and we're actually pretty dang good at elections. Otherwise, we would have gotten shellacked over the last two election cycles. If we were bad at elections, we would have been done for because we're not just like it's not like campaign versus campaign now. It's Democratic campaign versus Republican campaign and Fox and the networks and the Christian broadcasting system and all of this in place. Ready to go. And us, our little campaign with our little campaign headquarters and our committees. And, you know, we are doing it like we're holding on because enough of the people are with us. The majority is with us. But it's really hard to communicate. We don't communicate with them during the off time. So we flood them with ads and information at the end. And then hopefully we hold on for dear life, which is what we've done in the last two election cycles. So what do we do? We got to build out a system. Because if they do get total control, they're going to own all the systems. They're going to take them. I mean, do you think they're not going to take the airways? 
Do you think this is going to all be open or not? I don't know. I don't know how far they're willing to go. So we have to start thinking about what else we need in place to function. One, we need all these things to win. But two, we need these things if we are in a resistant situation. That's my conspiratorial Montana. But we need both. To, I mean, we need them for both things. To win and to resist, we've got to build out these networks. We've got to strengthen our unions. We have to strengthen our unions. Our workers have to be united. That is a big part of this, and we can do that. And there's an opening right now to that. That would be a big piece of this puzzle. We need to get into communities in really active ways. Our elected officials know this. They just don't have enough backup to get it done. What's your level of optimism versus pessimism? I think we are in trouble. Do I think we can prevent it? Yes. Do I think it's easy? No. No, I don't. It's really hard when there's a wall of propaganda coming at us. And that's what we've got now. And it's gotten very strong. To me, January 6th and, and the, the tragedy of that and the, like you shock of seeing that happen has now just come to me as like a test run. Oh, it's a hundred percent. Now they know, they know better how to communicate. They, they are like, okay, that didn't communication didn't work. So we can communicate like this. And now we have a much larger network of people. I think we've got some big, big, big challenges ahead. And, and we've got to stay very focused on what's going to move our folks and the independents. So we hold them all together up against this extremism. And we cannot let them wiggle out of it. We cannot let their extremism become commonplace. We can't. It doesn't feel, Stephanie, like your political career is over. Like, <laughs> I know. I was so close to getting out. And they brought me back in. Maybe not, but I don't know what it looks like. So I, I'm going to sit in the middle and be an evangelist for things I think we need. I think I can do that. And maybe I can be a connector of good people. Would you ever be a candidate? Unlikely, but I have said it Emily's List so many times. You should never say never. You can, you can say not now, but don't say never. So I feel like I should follow my own advice. However, it's super unlikely that I would ever be a candidate. I don't know if that's my strength anyway. My strength right now, my superpower is that I do know a lot of people. I get along with a lot of people and hopefully I can bring some folks together in a way that we recognize that we need to be a united front because we are in a war. And we want a battle, but we are in a war. No more of the pettiness and also let's be brave. And do some big, big things. That's why I titled this podcast Great Battlefield, because I feel similarly about, I stole it from Lincoln, but I think that we're in that kind of mess. Um, yeah. Although I do think that there are a lot of institutions that are nonpartisan that are very crucial to the whole game too. I agree. Um, is there a question that I should have asked you that I haven't? I, I, interesting. I thought you'd ask me about abortion. So I, on that note, I will say this. Dictators all over the world 
often start by stripping rights away from women. That is a very common maneuver. This issue is not an issue. It is going to be a daily reality for women across this country and families. And we are going to be very animated for a long time about what is going on with abortion access in this country. Because one, it is a right taken away. And two, we're now going to see legislatures doing really terrible things to make it harder or to get rid of it completely, state by state, which means women are going to die. Women are already dying. It's real right now. And folks are going to start hearing about what is really happening since women don't have access anymore. Well, that's optimistic. Yeah, on that happy note, we will rise up and fight back. That will happen. I do believe that. There's no question that the Supreme Court is a player in right-wing politics now, right? It's, uh, it's a legislative body now. It's not great. Um, no, no. You're definitely someone I would love to talk to for many, many hours, and I really appreciate <laughs> you taking the time. Uh, it was really great. Um, thank you for what you're doing, too. And and once I you know, get that billion dollars and figure out how to build my podcast ne- network on top of everything else, you're in. <laughs> I'm going to hold you to that. You got it. You got it. Stephanie, anything, anything else you want to say? No, I just really thank you for what you're doing. I think these conversations are really important. We have to keep doing this. Okay. That was Stephanie. She's at Shriakwan on Twitter. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.